0: We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Uh,
1: Lord, we we thank you that you've been speaking to us through this uh, book of Kings and uh, the books of Kings. And Lord, I ask that this morning, as we hear your word, so you'd apply it to us for today, Lord stir our hearts that we're ready to, to, to change and ready to listen. Lord, let us receive your grace this morning. Amen. So, handing over. So, this is the big showdown that we get between the two prophets, uh, the prof- uh, prophets of Baal and, and the prophet of God, Elijah. So how do we get to this stage? Well, just a quick recap. So we've got this guy, King Ahab, that's ruling in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, He's reintroduced the the worship of Baal, and his wife has been um, killing all of the Lord's prophets that she can get her hands on. Elijah came and confronted Ahab about his practices in the previous chapter and declared a famine. At that point, He was sent by God to go from Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, to the Kerith Brook, where he was able to be fed by ravens. And he was there until the brook dried up. Then he was sent from there up to the kingdom of Sidon, um, to Zarephath, where God had prepared a widow um, that he met collecting wood that took him in fed him with miraculous provisions of God in terms of the flour and the oil that didn't run out while he was there the child, her child dies um, but God through Elijah brings him back to life again and then we get into chapter 18 that we just saw acted out before you um, if, he didn't, if Elijah didn't know before just that meeting with Obadiah right at the beginning helped him realise he is a wanted man but he doesn't seem anxious, he doesn't seem concerned. I think possibly he's buzzing, he's just been fed by ravens, seen a widow's uh, child brought back to life, had magic uh, flower and oil, all kind of cool stuff going on. But it's still an important to know the timing of God. So this was maybe three years that he was in hiding for, so you want to Even though the miracles happen, they happen within God's timing. So we need to make sure that we're in line with that. Let me just uh, recap this bit of scripture here. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people said nothing. We don't currently um, live in a situation where we are threatened like, um, like the people of God were being there. And what, what was that threat? Why was he calling him um, a troubler of Israel, Well, Ahab didn't really get on board with the program. The nation had turned to worshipping Baal. He, he stuck out from the, uh, the prevailing culture. Sometimes you get that term of, oh, I be, you need to be on the right side of history, as if those that do history think that it stays static once it's, been, uh, once it's happened. So there's a very direct attack so Jezebel it wasn't Ahab, interestingly had been killing the prophets back in verse four. This wasn't just about providing an alternative, this was about trying to silence the voice of God in that nation. It made me think of, well, what do we face today? We're not under physical threats as followers of Jesus today. But there is an attack on us, And it often comes within our culture around this concept of tolerance there's a subtle appeal to us to dilute our position and beliefs on stuff, all all on uh, account of tolerance. And the kind of idea goes like this, is the intolerance of faith groups, such as Christians, that have been what has damaged society. And if you would just, um, if you want to play part of this society, leave your beliefs at home. So there's an effort in this to present Followers of Christ in a certain kind of light as intolerant, judgmental, and exclusive. And this can be intimidating. We can hear the voice of saying, oh, you're the troubler of our community. And it can back us into the corner, make us apologetic and quiet. Now, there's a lot to say on this subject. If you want to know more, make sure you just put it in the Slido because we can talk about this when we have more time or can can give you lots of links, because there's quite a lot of material and thought out on how we respond to these kind of accusations. But I just want to give you a quick overview so that we can take a stance like Elijah does. So the first thing I want us to note is the, the hypocrisy of these accusations. So to be called Intolerant by this culture is somewhat rich because this is the culture that has developed the intolerant council culture that, that has grown up over the last few years where my idea of tolerance means that I'm tolerant to everyone that accepts my definition of tolerance. But if you don't accept my, to- my position of tolerance then you don't deserve a voice in society. It's a little bit hypocritical. The idea to call someone judgmental is to take a judgement towards that person, again a little bit on the hypocritical side. And the idea of being exclusive, well every group that comes together has a basis around which it gathers, which others don't gather around it. Every group is exclusive to some sense, whether it's a formal or informal association and whether those rules are written or unwritten. There are a sense of what you've got to be or how you've got to act to be part of a group. So I've said before, I coach my sons under h football team. I'm not allowed to go on the pitch and play. I'm excluded because of my age. How <laughs> dreadful. Or, or perhaps I'm part of a, a cross-stitch club that gets together. If I spend all my time complaining how boring this is and guys, let's just play Fortnite instead, I don't think they'd want me to be part of that group. How exclusive. And the idea of leave your beliefs at home, they don't deserve to, to operate in the public square, well, I can't do that because my beliefs are so entangled with how I see the world. My beliefs affect why I think I'm here what I believe is right and wrong, what I think is wrong with the human race and how it can be fixed, what we should be using our time to do. I I can't separate that from decision making I make at any point in time. And you don't find other people leaving their beliefs behind when they come out to the marketplace, where they come into, into popular culture. How many songs How many reality TV shows? How many times do we hear someone say, just be yourself, you've got to discover who you are, you search deep down inside you, you discover that, and you be true to that and make everyone else have to accept you? Well, that's a belief system, but yet that one seems to be okay because it fits with the prevailing culture of the time. Or this idea, my sexuality is my identity. No, that's just who you are, people have to accept you for that. So no one lives by these rules that we could be backed into a corner. So what's our job in this? Well, our our job is to be salt and light. That's what Jesus has called us to be. We're not called to judge those outside the church. That's what God does. But we are called to judge each other by the standards that we have chosen to live by. That's how we love each other. Because sometimes this tolerance is just another way of saying, I don't care enough about you to be bothered that you're heading for a cliff. But those that have made commitments to Jesus, we have made an agreement on how we want to live our lives and what he has said that he wants in scripture. So because we're not here to judge the rest of the world, we're not interested in protest movements. We're interested in living out and doing our job. We're called to have different ethics to the world. We're called to be out of step with the culture that we're in. There's never been a culture that has ever existed on this earth that is in line with what God wants. So any followers of Jesus will find themselves sticking out as a sore thumb. But we get to declare something, whether by word or by deed, of the nature of who God is, And his love. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's 1 Peter 3.9. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the message that God gives us to come into this world with. That's an amazing message. I want to stand out for that message. He so loves us. And that's the key thing. When you're trying to work out what groups have a damaging effect on the rest of the world. Look how they treat people that are outside of them. If my heart is, God loves you so much, he would lay down his one and only son for you. is very different to, if you don't come my way, I will cut off your head is a very different attitude. And that is what brings salt preservation to the world. Sprinkle some of that on. I love you so much because you're made in the image of Christ and he loves you so much that he died for you. No matter what beliefs you choose to hold, no matter how different you are to me, that is the position I take towards you. So am I a troubler? So, if my job is to declare that the work of Christ has brought peace between God and man, I might end up provoking conflict. Sometimes taking just that position overturns tables of our culture, the theology, or the philosophy of our day. I'm not here to cause problems but I have been captured, and I'm being restored by his love, and I want to point everyone towards that reality, that that's available. And if conflict happens, well, Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He came with this message, and that caused him to be crucified. So don't be surprised if we follow a fate similar to where we stick out so much just by preaching a message of love and reconciliation. We will be seen as troublemakers to those that are unwilling to repent. And that was the case of Ahab. Ahab had three years to sort himself out. But yet, it didn't lead to his repentance, the famine. He was still killing prophets. He was still feasting With the prophets of Baal. And he was still blaming Elijah. The second thing we see in that passage. Is this thing about wavering. How long will you waver between two opinions? And the people said nothing. God wants us to make a decision. In Revelation. Talks about. I don't want you to be lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth if you're lukewarm. Be hot or cold. Be one or the other. In James, it warns us about being double-minded and unstable. Not Not picking a side to go with. In Joshua 24, Joshua says to the people, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. God wants us to pick to make a decision. Now, most of us don't flick backwards and forwards between claiming to follow God and claiming to follow false gods like Baal. We're, we're probably not in danger of doing that. But we do it in more subtle ways. So, we know that God loves commitment, and we, we would say, yes, yes, we want to be committed. But then there's these ideas of Phobo, fear of the better offer. I don't want to commit in case something else comes up. I don't know how often I get that now, like, you guys w- want to hang out. Oh, I might be. Well, why, why might be? What you're actually saying is, I don't want to commit in case something better comes up. Similar to the fear of missing out. Oh, I, I, I need to go to that just in case something good happens there. So I'm wavering between two opinions. I f- believe in this value, but I don't want to commit, I want to keep my options open in case something comes up that's better. Sometimes you might hear yourself, I trusted you, God. But then the situation got worse. So I'm kind of wavering, was I right to do that? Was that a good move? Last time you you heard Ficaret tell his story of he made that decision to stand on integrity, then everything went wrong. Well, was I right to do that? Now, now I'm being tempted to go back to, those, uh, to my previous employer. I might say, God, God is my provider and my protector. But then the redundancy or the health diagnosis has just made me panic. Well, d- does your panic actually indicate that you're wavering? Was that true or is this true? We might say God can do the impossible but then we kind of think oh well let's be pragmatic though in this situation let's be reasonable what can we expect. This was actually a situation that happened for me the other day we were making some key decisions as a core team and the question was did we feel by faith God was giving us the go-ahead and I felt yes yes it was and we do also have the resources available to meet that need. So, yes, let's go for it. Within a few days of making that decision, suddenly the cost increased beyond our resources. And I wavered. So, oh, well, should, did I actually hear before? Or was I not hearing before? Or did I hear correctly before? And I'm now thinking... Oh, I'm I'm panicking because what if it doesn't all pan out? The thing is, I still believe God spoke. And we're still going to step out in faith on that. But what I notice about God is he loves me too much to allow me to operate on the illusion that pragmatism was going to save the day. He was not willing to let me think, oh, it's all right. the budget will work out. He wanted to take me beyond what the budget could do so that I would actually be able to believe that he can do the impossible. Because sometimes we think, I can do the impossible, yeah, 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 but as long as it kind of, we're still in the black. But when it's projected to be in the red, I actually need him to do the impossible now. And that is actually a scary moment. God wants us to nail our colours to the mast. Now I did a little bit of research on this term and apparently what used to happen was when ships would go into battle, you'd be firing at each other and if the, your flag, your colours, were hit by, by, by firepower during the, during the attack and it, it started to become loose, the battle was paused to give you the opportunity to surrender. So if your flag was waving, if your colours were becoming detached, that was your opportunity to say, all right, now you've got us. If you can get close enough to attack our flag, you've got us done. So the concept of nailing your colours to the mast is to say, you might be that close, but we aren't surrendering. We're going to fight to the very end. No matter how bleak the situation looks, you're saying, you are still Lord, and I will love you to the very end. Just like when Meshach, Abednego, and the other one, Shadrach, that's the one. They said, even if the Lord can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're never going to bow down to your false god. There was a, they nailed their colours to the mast at that moment. They didn't have guarantee that it was going to work out in the way they wanted, but they had made a commitment. So my first question for you today: Is there an area in your life where you would like to nail your colours to the mast? Might be you've you've got a you're wavering on something, might be on a, a relationship, it might be in terms of money or, or jobs, or it might be in terms of raising that issue that you think isn't going to be received very well. I think the Holy Spirit will prompt you right now and you'll something think, yeah, I'm, I'm wavering. I'm claiming to believe something about God, but my attitude, my emotional response shows that I'm not settled in that yet and I'm, I'm not certain is there an area in your life where you would like to nail your colour to the mast today? So, the people said nothing. They were given a choice. They said nothing, and this is another thing I see about God in this. He is so merciful. He offered even more evidence to these children, the children of Israel, and evidence came in a miraculous fire. Maybe you're wavering in something. Maybe God just, God's willing and merciful just to give you that little more piece of evidence that you want. Jesus tells his disciples to remember the evidence of his miracles when they're panicking if they'd packed the right lunch or not. He said, look, do you think bread is a problem to me? Do you not just remember we just fed 5,000 people out of one kid's packed lunch? And you're worried about this. Remember the evidence that he's already provided. See, God doesn't ask us to blindly follow him. He's constantly giving evidence. But he also looks to complete our faith when it's small. You see, remember the story of the, the father of the demonized child, Jesus said, how long has he been like that? Oh, he's been, been, like, uh, been like that since childhood. He often throws himself into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for those who, be, who believe. Immediately the father's boy exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my belief. That's a very powerful position unwavering. I, I believe you can, but I just, I just don't see it. What's the next thing Jesus does? Heals the boy. Let me complete the bit that you could not complete. Let me show you that I am who I said I am. Jesus allows Thomas to touch his wounds when Thomas said, I won't believe until I can touch his wounds. Come, come touch it. Come see for yourself There's one point where Jesus is arguing with the the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, give us another sign. And Jesus said, you're not going to see any more signs. The thing is, if you look back, Jesus has just given them loads and loads of signs right in front of them. His issue was not the fact that they, they were asking for evidence, it was that they were being dishonest with the evidence that they'd already seen. And sometimes you've got to look back. How has he already proved himself to me? How has he done it in the past? God calls me to believe where I'm struggling and I'm limited. So do you want God to confirm his nature to you today, perhaps again or for the first time? Perhaps you don't have the evidence, you can't see in your life when God has come through and made himself known. Well, here's an opportunity for him to do that for you. Another point that comes to me here is, how did I end up here? Was it my choice or his choice? So is it us or is it God? So there's a bit in verse 21, it says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So the choice is in their hands. But then when Elijah prays, he says, Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you are Lord and that you are turning their hearts back again. Okay, so which one is it? Is God doing it or are they choosing it? Now, I find the the best kind of theological and philosophical um, source of our day is found in Bruce Almighty. So at this part, Bruce has got a message that has come to his phone uh, his pager to say come and meet come and meet me from God and so he's having a pretty bad day nothing's working out for him and so he's gone to meet God and he arrives at this abandoned factory and he bumps into someone who turns out to be God but he mistakes him for just the caretaker. I'm free on the seventh That's seven.
2: Seven.
1: That's that seven it is. So Bruce is then given God's power to see if he can do a better job than, than God. And he ends up making an absolute mess of everything because he's pursuing only what would suit him, irrespective of the consequence and everything else. So you get to this point where everything goes wrong and he cries out to God. Well, hello there, Bruce Almighty.
2: (laughs) Not as easy as it looks, is it, son? This God business.
1: They're all out of control. It's mayhem. I don't know what to do.
2: Well, you're right on time.
1: Seven o'clock. Seventh at seven. Okay. So I'm free, the seventh at seven, God says I'll hold you to it. Everything was by Bruce's decision to get to where he got to. Yet God still says you're right on time. So which is true, was it? Bruce's decisions or God's decision? Oh it's both. It's both God works with us all the time. So, do I come to God or does God come to me? In Revelation, uh, Romans 3, it says there's no one righteous, not one. There's no one that seeks for God. But then in Philippians 2, it says it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So I can't go to him, but he, he is working in me to cause me to go to, go to him. In the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son had to come to his senses. But then as he came back, he found the father was already waiting for him, looking for him. In Deuteronomy 30, it talks about God will circumcise our hearts. God will soften our hearts so that we would be able to turn towards him. But then in James 4, it says you don't have, you don't have because you don't ask. So the spirit works in us To draw us towards him. But we can resist it. So there's a push and a pull going on. All the time in our relationship with God. So I need him to soften my heart towards him. I need him to put the desire in me. To want my heart softened towards him. But I have to choose to act on that desire as God puts it in me. Because I can refuse I can choose to believe that I'm self-sufficient. I can choose to think that he's not needed. I can refuse to accept him as my Lord, and he will respect my decision to withdraw from him. So it's an interesting dilemma. Then we see the water going on the altar. I find this one really interesting. Because you can't make the impossible any more impossible. You couldn't make fire fall. So adding water didn't make it any more impossible than it was. In the same way, I can't make what's impossible any more possible by trying to help out along the way. But I can do all things through he who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. So there is a lot of impossible stuff. Luke 18, those who heard him asked, who can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So if we needed a miracle, if Elijah needed a miracle before, he needed no more of a miracle after the water went on. And God's spoken to me through this illustration at points because I've at times thought, I need to see God break through here, but if I just said the right things in the right way or the right timing, if I just acted in this way, it would be better. Or I'd be so paralyzed thinking, oh, if I did this wrong, then it would cause all these things to go worse. But I need a miracle. I need God to work anyway. And so getting too anxious about, oh, no, I've just spilt water on top of the altar. You needed a miracle before. You need a miracle after. You can't get there by pragmatism. You can't get there by trying to reason this through. So stop angsting over whether you can do slightly better in this circumstance and rest in him. If that applies to you, this is a question. Do you want to fix your eyes and your hope on the miracle maker? Rather than thinking what more can you do? My final point here is catching his drift. So they see a cloud the size of a man's fist. And Elijah says, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Really? The rain stops me? It's not rained for three years. There's kids that would be getting ready to start nursery that have never known rain in that country. But yet... He sees that and he says, you need to move quick before the rain holds you. Steve and Lisa, come. You've got a story for us. Okay, so Lisa, you are the sister of Laura. And in 2011, Laura gave birth to a baby. Um, This should have been a joyful occasion. Why was it not so?
2: So... um Joe contracted meningitis. He was on life support machine, breathing tubes. And he was fitting every three minutes. And the doctors were basically saying, he's not going to survive.
1: And they were, at, they were talking about actually turning off the machine, is that right? So, obviously, this is absolutely horrific. Now, Steve, you were at work when you got this call, when you headed straight to the hospital. How are you feeling?
0: Um, yeah, it's a bit... Yeah, a dark time, and I just felt the real urgency to get to the family that were at Hackney Hospital.
1: So you arrived not knowing what you were gonna what you were gonna find, but something happened while you were on the train on your way over there.
0: Yeah, so I um, was working in Kensington at the time. So Hackney is across London, so I had a long journey, and I just knew that I had to pray. Um, I, yeah, it was. An instinct just kind of, we didn't want to lose him, so it was just seeking God throughout the, that journey.
1: So, what happened once you got to the hospital?
0: So, um, yeah, I eventually found the room and I entered in, and it was what you expected people were family were in tears. And um, I held Johnny for I felt like an age, and I, just, and I felt him crying on me, and it was. It was strange because I was obviously physically there but by the time I got there well, I, was, I was full of hope. It was, I was seeking God throughout that journey and it, it was like I didn't want to be there but I had to be there and I wanted to be there. It was a bit of a mixed match. I just knew, knew that God could do something.
1: So you, you kind of pulled Lisa out of the room. What did you say?
0: Yeah, so... Um, as soon as I could, I asked Lisa to come out to the room. Um, we, went, we found a quiet place and I just said, we need to pray. I mean, it wasn't so, a situation I wanted to accept. Um, I mean, we just needed to seek God's face.
1: Now, Lisa tells it much more dramatically, Steve's arrival. So from, from your perspective, what, how did it happen and what, what happened next?
2: Um, yeah, so, from my perspective, he'd gone to Hen- um, Hackney Central instead of Homerton.
1: He, so. he he never remembers that he went to the wrong place. <laughs> so, a guy that got the wrong direction, or, it, it always falls out of his side of the story.
2: So, he basically had to run, because he was so desperate to get to us, obviously, he'd ran from Hackney Central all the way to Homerton. So, he kind of burst through the doors, he was really hot and sweaty, and, you know, everyone was crying. It was complete turmoil, basically. And then he, he said to me, right, we need to come outside. And he sat me down and he's like, what does it say in the Bible? It says that Jesus is a healer. And that's what we're going to be praying for. And I was just like, oh, do you really think? Do you really think that that is what, what would happen? He said, like, yes, that's what, what it says in the Bible. That's what's going to happen. So he just injected this hope and faith into me. And... um I went into the bathroom, I was looking in the mirror, my hair was all pulled, I was tear-stained, and I just started laughing at my reflection, just thinking, God could really do this, he can really heal Joe, and I got really excited, and you know, Steve and I were like, he could really do this, this could really happen, and then we went to find Laura, and we were saying, look, we truly believe that God's going to heal Joe, and then she was like, oh yeah, that's amazing, and and then um, a little bit later, my dad took me aside and said, look, we're going to have to plan a funeral, and my dad is atheist agnostic I'd say really and um, I said to him no we're not going to plan a funeral because Steve and I believe that Jesus is going to heal Joe and that's what we're going to stand on and then my dad who doesn't believe was like oh okay well if that's what you believe then maybe I'm going to start believing that as well and then he went to his sister and kind of said you know I think you know they're they're going to pray for him and then um, when we eventually got home one of my friends from church rang me and said, oh, we're so sorry to hear this. It's so terrible. You must be feeling terrible. I said, no, we're not feeling terrible. We're praying. We're believing. He's going to be healed. And then people, you know, started making little prayer groups and everybody just kind of caught this seed of hope and it just infected everyone. And then we we're all just standing. He's going to live. He's going to be healed.
1: How did the, how did the chapter end? What have, what have we got on the 13th of... March.
2: So Joe's going to turn 13, and he is an amazing blessing to us and everybody. <laughs> He's a blessing. We love him, yeah.
1: What did God show you in this whole event?
0: That um, like God is a God of the impossible. That like he, he can do it.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So the things that st- stood out for me, Steve caught God's drift. He spotted uh, a cloud the size of a man's hand in direct opposition to everything else that was in front of him, all all that seemed evidential to him. But there was something that he drifted back to as God is a healer. You could say that Steve was a troublemaker. He really came in and upturned the tables in that situation. his hope for the impossible was brewing up and that was, of more, was more convincing to him than facts to the opposite. And what I really like about that was how contagious his hope was. He came with something and as, as Lisa said, it injected her with hope. And then that caught by Laura, then that was caught by her dad, that, that was caught by members of the church. And it leaves me with this question. Do you want to bring a contagious seed of hope or faith to an impossible situation? I want to be someone that sees the cloud the size of a man's hand and starts making decisions based on that. So you've got to move quick because the rain's coming. You've got to be praying and expecting healing and not planning for a funeral because this is what God's going to be doing at this point in time. So it ends with that very comical ending there of um, Ahab charging down uh, the hill the in his chariot and Elijah running in front of him by the supernatural power of God. That's 50 kilometers, that run, just for interest. So, some responses you might. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I forgot I'd put that on there. Right. Response: You might want to be saying, today I will nail my colors to the mast on this matter. God, I don't want to be wavering between two opinions. I choose to believe you. You might be deciding, "So you know what, God, I need you. Just give me a little bit more. I appeal to your mercy. Give me a little bit more evidence. And what you might be saying is, you know what, God, I want to fix my eyes on the miracle maker so that I can bring hope and faith to impossible situations.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk, on Facebook lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at LifelineUK.